The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Turning over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, as we continue our trek through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, certainly a rich book full of truth about Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, his healing. And I just want to step right into it today, step right into the passage, if you would, with me. I'm grateful that Sam has already read it for us. Right in verse 10, we have a geographic note. Again, as we saw even last time I preached, we begin that way. The Luke is trying to help us get our contextual bearings each time, wants us to know where we're at where the disciples were, where the apostles were. And it says, on their return, and the question is their return from where? And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, their return from a short missions trip, really, that Jesus sent them out on. Jesus had sent them out, as you might remember, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. In verse 6, it says, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. These would have been the villages of the greater Galilean region next to the Sea of Galilee. They're going to retreat to a Town called, a town called Bethsaida, and this would have been on the northern shore of, not Lake Tahoe, but of the Sea of Galilee, and this would have been the place where they would have taken their rest and their leave, which indicates that they would have been ministering right around this area in the Galilean region, right around the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus, he's caring for his disciples, not only their spiritual welfare, but their physical welfare. It says in verse 10, he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, and Mark 6.31 tells us why he did that. Mark, again, this is the, the parallel uh, passage to our passage in Luke found in Mark 6.31. It says, quote, And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For they were, there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So Jesus, caring about his disciples holistically, brings them away so that they can have physical rest, and they retreat to this town uh, of Bethsaida, and this is the the town that Philip and Andrew and even Peter would have grown up in. It literally means house of fish, and obviously it's just right on the Sea of Galilee. It's going to be a fishing village, fishing town, and Jesus will eventually denounce this town for not repenting and believing at the time, at the preaching of the, of the, uh, the apostles, but that's for later we'll see in the Gospels. For now, we're in this town where Jesus and his disciples are getting some much-needed reprieve and rest from their ministry labors, but as it turns out, when you're with Jesus, your rest doesn't last as long as maybe you would like, because he's going to be all about the ministry again, as we see here. It says, they retreated to this town to get some rest. In verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And you're thinking, as one of the disciples, you're thinking, here they come, and Jesus is going to turn them away so we can continue our rest and our relaxation here after our short-term missions trip, because we've worked hard, and frankly, we deserve it, right? Well, apparently, that's not how Jesus is going to handle things, because it says they followed him, and he welcomed them. And you could just imagine the disciples being like, oh, man, are you serious? We just got done with all this work, and now we're welcoming more people, and Jesus welcomes them, and I just want us to notice the hospitality of Jesus. This is the word that was used earlier when the crowds were welcoming Jesus, and now Jesus is going to welcome the crowds 
And it just goes to show that when you're with Jesus, the rest may not, the rest is vital, but it may not last as long as you like it. But nevertheless, we find um, Jesus welcoming this crowd. He is riveted on his father's mission. He's riveted on his father's commission of sending him out to preach the gospel, to heal. And so he's going to continue that ministry, and the disciples are going to come along. The apostles are going to come along. And it says here, he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who are in need of healing. And that's an important sentence because it's not uncommon in the Gospels to see Jesus or the disciples at the uh, teaching of Jesus to put these two things together, namely teaching on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and healing people. You, fe- you find this a number of times actually put together in the Gospels. For example, Matthew 4.23, and he went all throughout Galilee, that's Jesus, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Later on in Matthew 9.35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Again, in Matthew 10.7-8, these twelve, his disciples, Jesus sent out, instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have received without paying, give without pay. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Luke 9.1, And he called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Okay? Kingdom preaching about the kingdom of God and healing. And I want to ask the question, why put those things together? What's the significance of putting those two things together? Preaching on the kingdom of God and healing. And in answering that question, we do need to say this first. In Jesus' ministry, there is a bit of asymmetry between preaching and healing. And what I mean by that is that Jesus is preaching and, and he's putting a bit of an accent on preaching more than he is healing. There's not a one-to-one correspondence for the amount of preaching that Jesus does. He does that same amount of healing, if you could measure it that way. And in fact, we'll see this uh, come to the fore as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, because in Luke, as you move through towards the end of Jesus' life, the miracles become less frequent. The healings become less frequent. They're there, but they become less frequent. Jesus' preaching ministry, however, remains steady. So there is a bit of asymmetry here. There's an emphasis on preaching. And I, and I pull that not only from that observation I just met, uh, made about go, uh, going through to the end of Luke's gospel, but also earlier in Luke. Chapter 4, verses 42 through 44 tell us that it says, when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the, of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And just prior to that passage, Jesus had just finished a massive healing operation, healing a lot of people. But he cuts it short and says, I must go elsewhere and to preach on the kingdom. I must continue to preach. So in Jesus' ministry, there is significant healing ministry, but there is an accent, an emphasis, you might say, on preaching, an accent or an emphasis that continues all the way through the life of Christ 
till his death and resurrection. And this is an important observation. It's an important observation because as wonderful as Jesus' miracles were, they were always intended to point people to something greater than the miracles themselves. What were they intended to point people towards? So you've got Jesus conducting all kinds of incredible miracles. Remarkable miracles. Miracles of creation. Miracles of healing. Miracles of resurrection, even. In terms of their power, the miracles demonstrated Jesus' deity, and we've already noted that in Luke chapter 5, verses 24 and following. It was an, an, an indication, it was a demonstration, rather, of Jesus' deity, that he is God in the flesh. This is also borne out in our next point. The miracles were also given to demonstrate the authenticity of Jesus' message and his mission. You see this in John 5.30 and following. Here's, here's what John says, or here's what John quotes Jesus as saying, but the testimony, this is Jesus now speaking, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the miracles would serve to authenticate Jesus' message, and then they would also later serve to authenticate the apostles' message so that people would believe the gospel. That's what they were there for. So the, the miracles were meant to sh demonstrate Jesus' deity, that he is God in the flesh. They were to demonstrate the authenticity of his message, to authenticate it, both his message and as the disciples took up the helm, that it would authenticate the disciples' message of the gospel. And then in terms of Christ's character, this is number three, in terms of Christ's character, the miracles display his divine compassion for suffering people. That's definitely wrapped up in these miracles. But there is a fourth reason these miracles were conducted that I want to draw our attention to today. The fourth reason that Jesus' ministry was attended by an abundance of great miraculous works was to point, something, point to something deeper and more permanent than the actual miracles themselves. What was that? These miracles were given to point to the kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching about throughout the Gospels, and he's preaching about here in our passage today. How do we know that, though? Am I just, do I just kind of like that, and I just chose that as, as one of the possibilities? I don't think so. Later on in Luke, Jesus is going to engage with the religious leaders, as he is always doing, right? And he is going to engage with them because they are now challenging his power to deliver people from demons. He casts out here a demon which had caused a man to be mute. It's an amazing miracle. God, Jesus is displaying his power over the demonic, the supernatural realm. And in a woeful display, or a display of woeful lack of discernment, the religious leaders say, oh yeah, you know what, you're, you're where your power is coming from. We got this figured out. Your power is coming from Beelzebul the prince of demons. A woeful lack of discernment. And Jesus catches them in their illogic because he says, well, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? And they're stopped in their tracks. They, they can't answer that. But then he goes on, verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That, that phrase, finger of God, in Matthew chapter 12 is, is, is the spirit of God. So what he's referring to here is the power of the spirit that he is using to deliver people from their demons. Jesus was a man 
God, the God-man equipped with the Spirit to cast out demons, to, to conduct incredible creative miracles. And he says here, if it is by the finger of God, or you can just replace that, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Watch what Jesus affirms here. If he is casting out demons by the Spirit of God, and he is, then such miracles are proof positive that the kingdom of God has come upon these people at that very moment. And why could Jesus say that? He could say that because if you're reading through Isaiah carefully and sensitively, then you would know Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61 say that the Messiah will be anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is just picking up on those texts and saying, listen, if I'm here delivering people from demons by the Holy Spirit, that is evidence, it's clear evidence that the kingdom of God has now come upon you in a real way. What does this mean? Does it mean that the kingdom had come in its fullness? No, Jesus didn't mean that it had come in its fullness. That would still be in the future. It hadn't arrived in its complete form yet. And this is precisely why a lot of people stumbled at Jesus' crucifixion. They saw these works and they started to get excited that this is the king and he's coming to establish his kingdom and he's going to put to flight all of our enemies and he's going to raise us up to glory and it's going to be wonderful. And then he goes to the cross and they have no categories for that whatsoever. And they're confused and they're caused to stumble. Why? Because the kingdom wasn't fully now. There was a future component, but there was a significant way in which it had come. It had come in the person of Jesus Christ and in the miracles that he was conducting. There are elements of the kingdom that are experienced now, and there are elements of the, of kingdom, of the kingdom that will be experienced later. And that becomes clear in Jesus' ministry. But in Luke 11.20, in its corresponding passage in Matthew 12, Jesus is saying that his miracles are evidence that the kingdom of God has broken, into, broken through into this world in a profound and tangible way. The king is among you, and he is bringing with him a taste of the power of the age to come. Specifically, the kingdom of God will be a place free from demonic oppression and possession. That's precisely what he means when he says the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm here casting out demons by the Spirit of God, you can know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what you can know at the very least is that the kingdom of God will be a place where de demonic activity will no longer have any kind of place. Jesus' miracles of healing and raising people from the dead and calming out of control weather, something that we saw a few weeks ago when uh, Cliff preached on the calming of the storm in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 and following. These are also tangible signs of what the coming kingdom will be like. Jesus is giving his people a glimpse, or as I wrote in the title of today's message, a taste of that coming kingdom. In the ministry of Jesus' miracles, that kingdom is breaking through into their present experience. And I just, here's an illustration to help you kind of think through this. Let's just say that you're hiking through the forest, and as you are making your way to a clearing, you notice that there is a cave over off a little bit off the trail, and you want to check out that cave, or at least if you have an 11-year-old boy and a 10-year-old boy and a 5-year-old girl, they want to check out the cave, and so that's what you go do. And so you go into the cave, and you start making your way deeper into the cave, because it's a pretty cool cave. And a few minutes in, you start to feel the earth shake and the earth rumble, 
and, and my wife is saying, you should have never led us into this cave, and I'm saying, I'm really sorry about this, and the earth is shaking, and all of a sudden, you recognize that you're in trouble, and so you start to make your way back to the entrance of the cave, but it's almost completely pitch black because now the entrance of that cave has been blocked by an avalanche of rock. It is sealed shut. In fact, it is so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. But you are now, you found your way, you felt your way back to the entrance of that cave, yet it is sealed shut with those rocks. And you're running out of provision. There's no hope for getting out. The life in, that you once enjoyed on the outside is no longer yours to be enjoyed. You're now trapped in this cave until death comes and takes you. Well, unbeknownst to you, another family was just behind you, and they saw exactly what happened, and they felt the earthquake, and they saw the avalanche of rock come and cover the face of the cave. And they called the forest ranger, and they got their crew over there, and they started to hammer and try to break through these rocks. And as you and your family are sitting in this cave, all of a sudden, a little pebble moves because of this work, and all of a sudden, a tiny fraction of a beam of sunlight breaks through. And a little bit over here, it breaks through. And all of a sudden, now you have hope because the outside where there is fresh air and there is abundance of provisions is now breaking through into your darkness, if only by a little bit. What Jesus' miracles are doing and then what the apostles' miracles would eventually do is to break in and break through into the darkness of this fallen condition, say that there is a kingdom beyond here in which there will be no more suffering, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more death, there will be no more demonic oppression, there will be no more out-of-control storms. And so as you are trapped in this darkness and you see the little beams of light coming in, you have hope of a coming kingdom. That's what Jesus' miracles and by extension his disciples' miracles are doing. Among the other things that they're doing, yes, they're confirming Jesus' deity, they're confirming his divine mission, they're authenticating his message and the, the disciples' message, but they are also breaking through with this coming kingdom. Because here's the question I want to put to you, because you might still not be convinced, okay? but here's the question I want to put to you. If it's all that these miracles were intended to do, namely to confirm Jesus' deity and divine mission and authenticate his message, why not just do other more spectacular miracles? If that's all you needed to do, why these kinds of miracles? Why healing? Why control out-of-control storms? Why raise people from the dead? Why not just make the sun go out like a flashbulb for a moment and then put it back up without everybody freezing to death? That would be a pretty cool miracle. I'd like to see that. That'd be awesome. Or he could have done this. He could have flown from Tyre and Sidon, you know, gotten up without a jetpack, flown from Tyre to Sidon in the north all the way to Kadesh Barnea down in the south. That would have been awesome. I, I would have paid to see that. Or he could have taken all the water out of the Sea of Galilee and dumped it down south in the Dead Sea. That would have been awesome. Just pick it up, you know, with his power and drop it down there. Why not those kinds of miracles? Why not those spectacular miracles? If it's just miracles you need, there are a lot of showy miracles that the apostles and Jesus could have done. Why healing and raising people from the dead and exercising demons and calming storms? Why? Here's why. Because healing diseases and raising people from the dead and exercising demons and calming stores are works that are directly reversing the fall and the curse. Disease, death, demonic possession, and dark storms are all the result of sin's entrance into the world. 
They are not a part of God's original creation. They are intruders. They were not part of God's original creation, and they will not be part of God's new creation, that coming kingdom. Jesus' miracles are an inbreaking of that coming kingdom of God. They're an inbreaking of that new creation that we'll someday experience. What is that coming kingdom like? Well, I can tell you what won't be there. Disease, death, dark storms, and demonic possession. And this is interesting. So you can begin to understand why. I remember seeing this years ago and wondering why it is that you find Jesus rebuking some elements of the creation, like he rebukes a fever and he rebukes a storm. Why rebuke? That just seems strange. Why not just say, calm the storm, cast out the demon? Why not just talk like that? But he, the word is rebuke, and it's used quite a few times uh, for, for Jesus' rule and control over the natural realm. And the word rebuke is used predominantly throughout the, the New Testament to refer to two people and one person engaging the other person and telling them that they are in the wrong. You are in the wrong, and you need to be set right. That would be a rebuke. Sharp, to the point, you are wrong about this, you're wrong about your conduct here, you're wrong about what you said, I love you, here's the rebuke so that you will be set right. Okay, That's what predominantly the word rebuke means in the New Testament. So then why would Jesus be using the word rebuke in his control over the natural realm. Just listen to this, Luke 4.39, referring to a disease. He stood over Peter's mother-in-law and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Rebuked. Did you find that interesting? Mark 17.18, here's reference to a demon. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Matthew 8.26, a dark storm. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. It shouldn't surprise us that we find Jesus rebuking diseases, demons, and dark storms. Why? Because these are elements of the creation that do not belong there. They are in the wrong. They deserve a rebuke. You rebuke diseases and demons and dark storms because they are all in the wrong. They don't belong in God's original creation and they don't belong in his new creation. They don't belong in the coming kingdom of God and Jesus through his miracles are, is giving people a taste of that coming kingdom. He's doing other things, but he's certainly doing that as well. So that is why I wanted to bring out this combining of the, king, the preaching of the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing here in this passage. These two things are brought together. We have to ask why, and I wanted us to see the why. And now you might be wondering, okay, that's, that's helpful. Maybe it's helpful. I hope it's helpful, but, but what does that have to do with the rest of the passage? And I, and, I, and I think it does have a vital connection to the rest of the passage. And now we're going to come into something very familiar to all of us, I'm assuming, the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. This is a remarkable uh, miracle, and I do believe it, it. there is a connection now between this and the inbreaking of the kingdom that we just talked about. So, verse 12, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into surrounding villages in the countryside to find lodging to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So the day is beginning to wane into afternoon, into evening, and it's getting to be supper time, and Interestingly, his disciples actually command Jesus to do something. This is a command. It's in the imperative voice. Send the crowd away, Jesus. 
Jesus, I know you want to be healing and preaching and, and do, conducting this ministry, but let, let's check, let's do this. How about we send them, we'll make it a weekend retreat. So we just did, you just said session one, all right, let's send them off, they can go get their meal, get some lodging, and then they can come back, and we'll pick it up again tomorrow. And it's, from their perspective, it's a reasonable set of instructions, given their current situation, right? Well, Jesus gives them a command of his own. He says, you give them something to eat. And on the face of it, the disciples' command was a little bit more reasonable than Jesus's, at least on the face of it, because here it says, um, there were, let's see here, there were about 5,000 men. This would have had reference to just the men who are there. It's likely, because there would have been women and children not counted in that number, that it could have been upwards of 15,000, even 20,000 people in this gathering. So the disciples are, this is, a, this is on the face of it, a ridiculous command. Ours is much reasonable, more reasonable, Jesus. I mean, think about it. You just send them down there, they got their, they'll take care of their own provisions. How could you put this on us? They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're going to go buy food for all these, uh, unless we're going to go buy food for all these people. So they've got a little food supply there themselves, but that's not an option. That won't feed anybody. And then the other option is to go buy food. And that is, seems ridiculous, if not unkind, because that would have required each of the 12 apostles to pray, pay a pretty significant sum of money to pay, to feed these people. In fact, in John, it's, said that it could have cost around 200 denarii, about eight months' wages for a day laborer, just to give everybody in the crowd a snack. So this is seemingly unreasonable. Why would Jesus do this? But I want us to see that actually in this exchange, you have the whole of Christian ministry wrapped up in, in one brief exchange. We've been given an impossible ministry, the saving and saving of sinners and the raising of dead people to life. It's impossible. Jesus commands us and commissions us. It's impossible. But then he commands his disciples to fulfill something impossible, but then he immediately provides them with what they need to fulfill that requirement. So what happens? He is showing them their inadequacy. He is showing them the impossibility of his demands but then showing them that he is the one who will, who will ultimately provide for this people. He's going to use them as his servants. He will use them to feed the people, but Jesus will be the ultimate provider. Well, to the relief of the apostles, I am sure, Jesus follows up this command, you give them something to eat with, uh, uh, and then their response, we only have this many loaves and fish, how are we going to do this? He follows up with this, uh, for there are about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each, and they're like, oh, phew, okay, this, okay, maybe we're going to try a different approach, rather than sending us to town and, and spending our life savings to give these guys a Snickers bar, it just doesn't seem right. And so Jesus is now going to have them organize this situation, so Jesus is not only the master teacher, but he's also He's into logistics. He can handle that too. And he says he's going to divide them up into 50s. And this would have taken multiple minutes, I, I expect, because doing the math, it's not a hard math to do. This would have required the 
12 apostles to then divide the groups of 50 into 33 groups. So this is a pretty significant operation that they have to oversee, and it would have taken multiple minutes. Well, after the groups are organized, Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he prays a blessing over the food, and then they distribute the food, and this becomes a miracle of massive proportions. Remember what's happened here. Five loaves, two fish. It would have barely fed the apostles, and now it's actually going to feed 20,000 people. Jesus, the creator himself, making something out of nothing, multiplying a small ration of food, and turning into a feast of epic proportions. That's what happens. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples who were who, to set before the crowd. And we have to step back again and ask, why, Luke, why would you include this story? Well, actually, it's a story that's included in all four Gospels, as it turns out. And what is the result? This is important because each of the Gospels says the exact same thing. What's the result? In Matthew, this is the result. And they all ate and were satisfied. Mark, and they all ate and were satisfied. Luke, finish it with me. And they all ate and were satisfied. Well, John says it a little differently. He says, likewise, also the fish, as much as they wanted and they were filled, which is another way of saying, and they all ate and were satisfied. So do we get the picture? They all ate and were satisfied. What is Jesus displaying with this miracle? It ties into what we've already said. Jesus Christ is showing his disciples that he is the all-sufficient king and savior. Just ponder for a moment with me, if you will. This is fascinating for me this week. Just ponder for a moment the many passages, and I'm just going to give you a smattering, the many passages in the Old Testament that speak specifically of God satisfying his people. I'm just going to give you a few. Psalm 22, 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. David says in Psalm 63, 5, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 65, 4, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. He shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Psalm 103.2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not of all of his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And then Jeremiah 31.14, which is looking into the future, a future satisfaction that God is going to provide his people. Jeremiah 31.14, then the young women re, uh, rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. That's just the Old Testament. Do you think that has any connection with what's happening here in this miracle? In this miracle, Jesus is displaying to his disciples and to the crowd that the one that he is the one who satisfies their souls and that his kingdom is a kingdom of limitless provision and satisfaction. Jesus will fulfill your every need. There is nothing you need that he can't supply. Everything you need and more is found in him. But here's, here's a vital point, and this is where the prosperity teachers are dead wrong. 
These miracles of healing and provision are, as we've already noted earlier, remember this is a vital point, they are a pointer to a coming kingdom. They're not an indication of what you and I are entitled to in this life. They point you forward. They point you into a kingdom. These miracles are to direct your heart to the king so that you will be satisfied in him, not in the earthly provisions that he may or may not bring into your life. They are meant to draw our attention to Christ the King. So is, is, but is Jesus concerned about his disciples' practical needs? Well, absolutely. We've already seen it. That's why they're there. That's why they're in Bethsaida, because Jesus is, has a holistic concern for his disciples, and they were weary, and they needed rest, and they needed to eat. In fact, he, Matthew 9.14 tells us that when he saw the crowd, he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And so Jesus does have a holistic concern for the people. But Jesus' healing and provision of food in our passage today was prefaced by and it was intertwined with this teaching on the kingdom of God. And we have to keep that in focus because if Jesus is only an earthly, earthly provider to us, if he's only an earthly provider to us, and I'm afraid that he is for a lot of people who profess the name of Christ, if he is only an earthly provider for you, and only an earthly healer, and not himself the one who satisfies your soul, then you will likely drift away from Jesus when the going gets tough and trials enter your life, and you don't get what you thought you were entitled to. That's why, so just, I want us to turn over briefly, well, I'll turn over there, you don't need to, because we might be going back and forth here. That's why... In John's Gospel, this very episode is followed up by Jesus' teaching to the crowd to find their ultimate satisfaction in him. This is, this is the parallel passage. Now we're getting more than, than Luke gave us. We're getting more. Now John is giving us the response of the crowds. And Jesus is going to point out their deficiency at this point. They are only looking for natural provision. And this is now in John chapter 6, verse 27. He says to them, following this episode, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then he goes on in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The message of this miracle is that Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient King and Savior. In Him you can find all that you Need. In his coming kingdom, there will be no death, no illness, no material lack, no sin, and most importantly, the king will be there in his glory. Every miracle we are to see that Jesus is the centerpiece of the kingdom. Jesus is the centerpiece of the kingdom. The bread that you eat right now, crowd, is meant to point you towards the bread of life. Jesus is the object of our satisfaction. Or another way to say it, and Cliff has already said this. Another way to say it is that Jesus is the kingdom, which is precisely why he could say that the kingdom of heaven is now upon you when he was casting out demons by the Spirit of God. And if you think I'm just playing fast and loose with some cool ideas, go ahead and just turn over a, a, just a chapter over in Luke, over to chapter 9, or not even a chapter, a few verses, over to chapter 9, verses 28 and following. The transfiguration. Jesus displaying his divine glory. It's going to shine through 
his humanity in a, in a way that we can't even comprehend. The disciples who saw it couldn't comprehend it. And what's important for our understanding today with my statement that Jesus is the kingdom is the statement in verse 27, right before the transfiguration. Verse 27, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And that has kind of confused interpreters over, uh, over the years. There shouldn't be much confusion because the next passage tells you precisely what Jesus means. Peter, James, and John are going to be led with Jesus onto the mountain where he is going to transfigure himself, display his divine glory. I don't know what that was like, but it was so incredible that Peter just started mumbling and he didn't know what to say. Let's build a tent. I don't know. What do you, what do you say at a time like this? I don't know. Right? And so it's this incredible display of Christ's glory, and that tells you what Jesus meant when he said, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. They saw his glory. They hadn't tasted death. To see the kingdom of God is to see Jesus in his full glory. Or to say it another way, to see Jesus in his full glory is to see the kingdom of God. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of the centerpiece of that coming kingdom when they saw, just for a moment, Jesus' divine glory shining through his humanity. See, this is an important point because to receive only earthly healing and to receive only earthly provision from Jesus is not the greatest gift that God can give you. The greatest gift that God can give you is to behold the glory of his Son. That's the greatest gift that he can give you. Which is precisely why Cliff two weeks ago referenced John 3, where Jesus said that only those who are born again by the Spirit of God can see the kingdom of God. Only those who are born again by the Spirit of God can behold the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. See, despite the wonder and power of Jesus' healing, and all that he did in feeding the 5,000, and all the other miracles that he did, all of them amazing all of them acts of incredible compassion. They were not his greatest works. His greatest work came after he died. His greatest work was his resurrection. He had atoned for sins. It was finished. He had borne the wrath of God. He had... He had sufficiently fulfilled all that was required according to God's law for his people. But in terms of his miracles, the resurrection was the greatest. It was the decisive inbreaking of the kingdom into our fallen condition. The kingdom is coming, and you can know it with absolute certainty because it broke through definitively 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. A new creation is coming in which God will make all things new and remove all sin and stumbling blocks and heal every disease. And Jesus' bodily resurrection 2,000 years ago was the first fruits of that coming new creation. In that coming kingdom, there will be no illness, no death, no out-of-control nature, no material lack, no demonic presence. And that was sealed with Jesus' resurrection. See, here's, here's the reality for the people that received exorcisms and resurrection 
and healing in Jesus' ministry. They all eventually had to succumb to earthly death. Their healing, though real and a taste of the coming kingdom, it was only temporary. Those who ate the food were satisfied, but they'd be hungry the next day, if not a few hours later. But Jesus' resurrection indicates that the future healing and the future provision in the future kingdom is permanent. The new creation began at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and every time someone is saved from their sin and raised spiritually from the dead by the Spirit of God, they themselves are now signs of that inbreaking kingdom of Christ. That's why Paul says, you, why does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you're a believer today and you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you have new creation living in you. An actual the actual essence of that coming new creation is living inside of you right now. So this episode of healing and rich provision of food in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17 was never meant to stand on its own or be an end in and of itself. That's why so many people missed it. They just saw it as an end in and of itself. It was a pointer beyond the miracle to Jesus Christ and his coming future kingdom. And the only way you can enjoy that coming kingdom is if you are forgiven by your sins and born again by the Spirit. Again, just referencing back to Cliff's message two weeks ago in Luke 9, uh, 1 through 6, he showed us that the kingdom of God, look in verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Verse 6, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. See, there's only one way to enter the kingdom of God. It is through the gospel, through believing in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You must believe the gospel in order to enter the kingdom. You can enter it now and experience some of it now and then experience it in its fullness in the future. But that's only if you come to Christ as the all-sufficient Savior King. We know that the way John follows up this story, now going back to John, when he follows up this story, that many in the crowd did not respond positively. Not many understood what Jesus was talking about. They only had spiritual, or natural eyes. They didn't have spiritual eyes. They saw their physical hunger and wanted Jesus to fill that. They didn't see their phys- uh, spiritual starvation and want Jesus to fill that. So when Jesus told them directly and even graphically that they needed to find all their satisfaction in him, not just in the food he provided, many of them just walked away. They didn't want to hear it anymore. They didn't have ears to hear what he was saying. Jesus said this, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him That's verses 54 through 56. Ten verses later, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why? Because that graphic statement was a point to show them that it's not about the physical bread that you're eating. It's meant to point to to me to find your spiritual satisfaction in me. See, you can have a kind of faith that believes in Jesus, but mainly follows him for earthly provision and healing. I think that that constitutes a lot of American Christianity. You're good with Jesus so long as he's got you 
taken care of with that house on the hill and that three-car garage. And you're good, you're good then, but what about, it, what about when it all comes crashing down? But true faith is finding your satisfaction in Jesus supremely, more than in an earthly provision. This earthly provision is gracious, it's sweet, we thank God for it, but it is temporary. True faith looks beyond the provision to Christ and His coming kingdom where the Lord will shine in all of His glory and there'll be no, more any, no longer any more sin or death or sickness or any more disruptions to God's creation. The call for you today, friend, is to find all of your satisfaction in Jesus, which is to say, to believe in Him. Some of you might still be thinking that this faith, this satisfaction in Christ is just a mere exercise of your will. You can do it today, you can do it tomorrow, whenever. But we actually need to end here on John 6.44. John 6.44, because Jesus' statements about finding satisfaction in Him and truly believing in Him is interwoven with very clear statements about the necessity of God's work in giving you this kind of faith. This kind of faith is not natural. This requires supernatural work that only God can accomplish. John 6.44, no one can come to me. In other words, no one can believe in me as their soul's supreme satisfaction unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus says, find in me your eternal satisfaction. And you realize this is impossible. My heart is hard and unbelieving. It delights in the things of this world. I find my hope and happiness and satisfaction in the good things of this life, in a hefty bank account, in a certain size home, and earthly safety. So I would tell you to cry out to Jesus for salvation. You need God's saving mercy. You need a divine miracle. Cry out to God through Christ for a new heart, a heart that beholds Jesus in His glory, repents and believes in Him, he is near to all who call upon Him in faith. In fact, the Scripture promises, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus' words and His ministry in this passage in Luke. And the ultimate call to us to find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ in His person. We do thank You for the, the many provisions You Give us. We are helpless in an earthly sense without your provision. But yet that's not the greatest gift you can give us, Heavenly Father. The greatest gift you can give us is beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. So would you work that miracle in every person here who hasn't experienced it yet? Would you clear away some of the overgrowth, maybe legalism, maybe worldliness that has covered up the glory of Jesus from our spiritual eyes so that we might behold him again anew. And God, I just pray that your mercy would be upon this church and help us to take these words deep into our hearts that they might bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.